Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? This podcast is a member of the Mud Puppy Games Network. I'm John Peterson of Playing at the World, and you are listening to Save or Half. School games and the modern games inspired by them. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Safer Half Podcast, a podcast where we discuss old school games and the modern games inspired by them. I am one of your hosts, DM Mike, who for this episode will be Dr. Hans Zarkov, or Topol, if you prefer. <laughs> Mike, because fresh breath is a priority of my life. And joining me is DM Corbett, otherwise known as Flash. Everybody. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'll save every one of us. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> and also someone with a great booming voice, DM Jim. As our very own Prince Voltan. Gordon alive. Alive, alive. <laughs> and General Kala herself is the last of the hosts, but not least, DM Liz. Dispatch War Rocket Ajax to bring back his body. <laughs> oh. Flash. Classics. Ah. <laughs> and the only real voice actor among us. Well Indeed. Done. That's kind of sad. <laughs> If I'm the bar for real in this group. <laughs> and we're talking about Flash Gordon stuff because we are covering Flash Gordon and the Warriors of Mongo by Fantasy Games Unlimited in 1977. The well-known game. Yes. <laughs> Never heard of it. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's going, what? <laughs> they made a Flash Gordon game? In fact, I think it was the first licensed role-playing game? Kind of? Well, I'm pretty sure it came out the same year that TSR put out the Flintstones Tactical War game. Ah, oh, well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did say licensed, where TSR just ran ahead with Barsoom and Warlord. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Very true. Licensed. Yeah. Uh, and, and they are very clear in the front page. This has been licensed. <laughs> Which, that was why um, Scott Bizarre? Is that how you say his name? Bizarre? Is it Bazar? I don't know. I've not, I have not ever been clear if it is Bizarre, Bizarre. Bazar. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, but he cool. left TSR because of the John Carter stuff, from what I understand. Well, okay, from what you read about in the internet. I didn't know he worked totally for true. TSR. Somehow he was connected with him. Okay. Huh. Well, I knew I, he, he was not impressed with either D&D &D or warriors of mars and 
so put out some other games after starting Fantasy Games Unlimited, including this one. But we shall discuss it in top five. Until then, does anyone have any announcements? I have an announcement. It's kind of a niche group, but I thought I would talk about it. As some of you know, I'm a horrible listener of podcasts, and one of the ones I was listening to, called Sightless Fun, about blind gaming, interviewed some people called Knights of the Braille. You can find them at knightsofthebraille.com, and they apparently are a whole bunch of blind and visually low-vision role players. Mostly D&D, but, you know, there's some Starfinder and some other stuff, and they specialize in having a forum of discussing gaming with low vision and, you know, connecting people up. They even accept sighted people if you want to, you know, show up and game on a Discord channel or something sometime. That is so cool. Yeah, really cool. I was. I don't know if I've got the time to really run a game through them, but I think I'd like to chat with them about, you know, how you manage to handle problems being a, a blind DM, that sort of thing, and some of the workarounds I've found. Wish I'd known about them 20, 25 years ago, but then, of course, they weren't around 20, 25 years ago, so there you go. Well, this is the internet eventually getting around to doing what it's supposed to do, which is pull people together and accumulate knowledge all as one big group, as opposed to just trashing each other. And trading cat <laughs> pictures. But at least you're not bitter about it. <laughs> bitter about trading cat pictures? Everybody's bitter about trading cat pictures, Mike. Come on. <laughs> Trading cat pictures is part of what brings people closer together on the internet. <laughs> I can has role playing games. All that right, well, cool, all right, well, let's uh, go to a pod break, and when we come back, we shall discuss first Mike and the mechanics, and then top five. Good evening, Mister and Miss Gamer, from role playing to board games and all the ships at sea. Let's go to press. The pig-faced orcs are on the march in Fresno. It's a call to arms for all old-school gamers. Are you doing your part? Here's Timmy. What are you doing about the pig-faced orcs, Timmy? Ah, he's rolling initiative. Timmy's doing his part. Now how about you? Come to the pig-faced orc RPG convention at the Woodwood Park Regional Library in Fresno, October 19th. 2019 from 9 to 5 p.m. Sharpen your swords for a big dinner. Into a world without nearly enough quality gamer podcasts, they came. The Grognard Files, a podcast about role-playing games from back in the day. You know they're experts because they speak with British accents. Find them at armchairadventureblog.com, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are served. It's time for Mike... And the mechanics. Sorry, sorry. That's Mike and the mechanics of the game. My bad. Welcome to Mike and the mechanics, where Mike says everything I plan on saying over the next hour in 30 or 60 seconds. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs>
Mike steals everybody else's top fives. Wahaha! <laughs> That's okay, I'm stealing some of my own. So, for one thing, this game is like 47 odd pages. So, it's we're probably going to have some overlaps regardless because, you know, there's not just tons here, at least as far as page count. It's got a lot of info, but we'll go into that. Anyway, it's ostensibly a role playing game. Everybody is encouraged to play Earthmen who have landed on Mongo, and their goal is to adventure and gather allies in order to eventually overthrow Ming the Merciless, the emperor of the universe, or at least of Mongo. And whoever overthrows him first wins. It is nominally a role-playing game. There are four attributes. Physical strength slash stamina. Combat skill. Military skill. Uh, sorry, combat skill is military skill, by the way. And that's that's a typo. They run in. It's like they call it combat skill until about page 10. And then they call it military skill until about page 38. Then they start calling it combat skill again. But the other attributes are charisma, attractiveness, and scientific aptitude. A confusing part of this, when I first read it, it said use 3d6 average dice. Now, my gut feeling on that was, I first thought it was 3d6, but then my gut was saying, there's something wrong here. So I did some research, and apparently what he meant was average dice, which was a six-sider you could buy in the mid-70s for wargaming. But instead of one through six on it, it had two, three, three, four, four, and five. Get out. Yeah. So actually, when it says roll 3d6 average dice... They mean rolling dice that you can't get less than six and greater than 15. All right. Well, there goes my number four. Sorry. That's super interesting. And now I want some. <laughs> yeah. I, I like, I wonder where, I wonder if anybody makes those anymore. If you've got to buy. Oh, and... you can still totally buy those. Okay. Well, see, now I feel like I've learned something today. Oh, send me that link. I'd like to buy some. Now we all know something new. And it's supposed to have a GM, but. Looking through it, I really honestly can't tell where a GM's input is really necessary. Everything is, you have this. It happens. Roll these dice. You have to get X or Y. If you get X, this happens. If you get Y, this happens. And that's pretty much it. You know, it's like, well, what's the GM doing? It's got a certain choose-your-own-adventure kind of feel to it. Yeah, I mean... But but without the choosing? (laughs) (laughs) Because you just kind of follow the adventure. Yeah. <laughs> There's really not a I lot. I don't know. Uh, you can always... There's always sections of, you can abandon your companion. That happens a whole lot. Or you, you have a choice of, you can go ahead and let them make you a slave, because you'll escape in a week anyway. They're, they're real lax with their guards. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just accept your fate. I think we're going to vomit out every single top five if we keep on this path. <laughs> anyway, uh, you're supposed to choose a role. Either warrior leader or scientist if you're like a warrior you get a plus one to your strength stamina if you're a leader you get plus one to your charisma attribute and scientist you get a plus one to your science and as you succeed going through places and do succeed at various things you get pluses to your attributes that's how they manage to instead of going up in level or anything that's that's your reward and it comes with a board and counters, so it's kind of semi-board gamey. We'll get more into that. That that's basically all you need to know. Have those dice, choose a character, roll those attributes, your and randomly roll on a table to see where you start, and then go. Mm-hmm.
for half. Top five. In five, four, three, two. And we'll start with Corvette, because this was his game choice. Yeah, because this was your bright idea. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm going to get a lot of that. <laughs> Oh, very dangerous. You, you go, go first. <laughs> Which means Liz will be choosing the Indiana Jones game next. Sure. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start with something I, I thought was funny. Because there's there's sections. It's essentially a, a big giant old module that more or less are following all the way through. But when you get to the city of Mingo and you're immediately put to death or set for execution, there's a, a table for the means of execution. <laughs> it's uh, way back on page 43 or something but it's basically you roll a, d- a roll a d6 to find out how you're going to be executed with six being that you're not executed and you're put into the dehumanizing machine which makes you a bad guy which is basically an alignment reversal ray yeah mm-hmm. it's more or less yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny that they need a table to know how to kill you <laughs> I'm just impressed you found the table and the rules at all because I've never see, read any rules that I would think this needs more tables. <laughs> but this game definitely does. Yeah, it definitely does need more tables. But that was just kind of a funny, like, eh, as far as tables go, I, I don't think I've ever come across a need to know how somebody's going to be killed. Actually, that sounds like a table that would have been in something from the Judges Guild. I, I would not be surprised, like, in the city-state there had been a table, and there might be. I might just not be remembering it, but how you get executed. This man is about, about to, to die. <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, he has been allowed to choose the manner of his own execution. <laughs> if you'd like him garroted, press one. If you'd like him <laughs> hung, press two. <laughs> if you don't care, you just want... Uh... Anyway, all right. Uh, number two, Jim. So you can get some out of the way before I ruin more. <laughs> I was going to say we're still on. Okay, we're still on 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 number five. One, five, five, five one, five. whatever. We're counting down. We're, we're still on the first one, but Jim is the second person. Okay. <laughs> this this whole game is on the execution roll up. <laughs> but go I'm ahead. So confused. Well, my number five is a general rant. I just get it out of my system, and then we can actually talk about the good parts and why anybody should actually read this, because it's super interesting in lots of ways. But but it's not a role-playing game as we understand them. It's more like a board game meets an endless quest book. It's a war game, but without maps and counters, or a board game without the board. It's all kinds of things mashed together, and uh, I had to go do some research and figure out why. And it's because it was co-written by Scott Bazaar who famously started Fantasy Games Unlimited, which published this, and uh, has a few writing credits of his own, and Lynn Carter, a well-respected genre author. And uh, as Liz alluded to in the pre-show talk, Lynn Carter uh, lays it out in the introduction that Scott wanted to do you know, this tactical war game, and I wanted it to be a serialized adventure game, and I got my way. And the whole rule set is transparently written by Lynn Carter, with input from Scott Bazaar because it's very prose-oriented. So there are very few tables and practically no 
rules as we understand them, everything is sort of stream of consciousness as you encounter it in the adventure. When you meet so-and-so, you need a such-and-such, and and it's just written in a paragraph form. And if you roll this, you, you go here, and if you roll that, you go there. Super naive rules writing. Yeah, I came across a quote in Different Worlds number four that apparently Scott Baser was uh, saying that they wrote this game under a straitjacket, that they literally had no effective input on how the rules were put together. So assuming he's telling the truth, and I don't know why he wouldn't, but that it, it would explain some of that. Like Does anybody remember that one eBay Kickstarter, Fifty Shades of Vorpal? No. Our listeners I will, was will know not about aware it. that was a right. thing. Some yeah, kid but... down in Texas or somewhere just, you know, his pen, it, it, he put up as a Kickstarter project his campaign, and it was almost too good to be true. It's like somebody's actual notebook scans, the drawings and the notes, and everything's going to be super elite and super cool. Oh, it's, okay. like Lynn, it's like Lynn Carter sat down to write Fifty Shades of Vorpal. Yeah, I, I think I'm remembering that now. And they people were sharing the, the the cover art, which you know was like you know a 12 year old had you know had drawn his own adventure stuff. And so somebody with the wordsmithing skills of a uh, acclaimed published fantasy and science fiction author sat down and decided to do that. That's what these I, rules I could are do like. a role playing game. Mm. I could do this Dungeons and Dragons stuff. Yeah. I mean, that said, in 1977, everybody was still figuring out how role-playing game rules were written, but this is not it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's it. Random. All right. <laughs> Liz, number five. Number five. Well, I'll jump on to what Jim was saying, because that was something that really you know stood out to me, and I'm sure to all of us. Like when we were covering the first version of Boot Hill, the game seems to be floundering in indecision, whether it's a war game or an RPG, you know, because <laughs> they've got a little bit of both, and none of it makes sense together. It's like, eh. And you've got the players, they're split into groups of two to three people each. So you're automatically placing them in competition with one another to achieve victory conditions like it's a war game. Or a race game, yeah. Yeah, a, a race, you know, or and in most instances, you know, the injuries are only a way to slow a team's progress. Everything that happens is something, it's meant to slow you down. Yeah, it's rare there's a chance of death, and I think it's not till you get into the you know, the the more central territories. Yeah, there's no unified mechanic for healing injuries. The procedure differs from map section to map section. Creature to creature. Yeah. yeah, it's like, well, if you're here, you know, if you're injured, you just lose a random number of turns when you roll a six-sider. But if you're in this different location, if you're injured, then you have to do this weird math where you roll two dice and you divide by three and then da 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 da. And well, turns have no meaning, too. Right. And it's just like they threw a whole bunch of things together into a pot and none of it has any sort of. It's like, ah! <laughs> when we were talking about it a couple of nights ago. You know, I mentioned to you that at one point, you know, if you have this happen, your your wounds will prevent you from continuing on the very first six turns. And my when I read that, my first thought was, do not pass go, do not collect $200. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's exactly what it felt like, the jail in, in Monopoly. Yeah, but then like an RPG, a balanced party of each of the character types 
gives you the best chance of success in in the overall game. There's a whole paragraph about how you should cooperate as a team. Yeah. yeah. We want the war game aspect of having teams competing against each other, though. So there's a winner and a loser. Or even beyond war game, you know, board games at this time. Yeah. You got to have a winner. Yeah. So, yeah, like I said, I'm sure this was something that just leaped out at all of us. It's like, this is a hot mess <laughs> of different kinds of rule systems that really don't work well with each other. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, my number five, two to 20 players? <laughs> oh, yeah. That's one of mine. Can anyone <laughs> have thought as, okay, we've all GM'd. We've all GM'd before. Can you imagine, well, I know it's a stretch for any of us running this to begin with, but can you imagine having 20 players? I'm like, guess if you were doing a tournament. Did, did he really have 20 players, or was that just a generic number because that's what was on D&D at the time? This is where John Peterson would comment that uh, 20 players at a table was very common in the early, mid-70s. So. Yeah. But However then, but, Gary managed it. Yeah, but if you're splitting it into groups of two to three people each, you're going to have a whole bunch of groups that you're having to... This game would take forever if you were having to cycle through six different groups of people. I mean, even at three people each, that's seven teams. Can you imagine seven teams of three people each huddled around this little map, moving those little yeah. paper counters? Ming wouldn't stand a chance. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be like a punch, punch, punch. so yeah, that 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 was what really first stood out to me. I know it's old school, but I'm like, what the frack? Anyway, four Flash. I really love the thing. One of the reasons why I like Flash Gordon is because I really love serials, the old 1930s serials, and I I love them because of the cliffhanger endings and the the they pull you in every time, even though it would get frustrating when like you see a, a car go off a cliff and at the end of one episode, then the next episode, they just show the same scene, but then he jumps out just before. I'm like, why didn't you show that? But the end, then I wouldn't have had to freak out for a week or however long they had to wait. Yeah. We've got some old forties, Captain America's that you know, oh, yeah. at one point you very clearly see him in the room as everything's as the ceiling falls in on him but then it's the next one episode is he leaps out at the last minute one of my favorites is captain marvel it, it just i realized how it pulls me in because i was captain marvel was investigating this this lumber mill where gangsters were doing something it's captain marvel shazam by the way for anybody who doesn't know uh he's investigating this lumber mill and these gangsters come out and hit him on the back of the head with a pistol and it knocks him out for some reason but you don't think about that because they throw him on a a lumber like rolling saw, saw blade. and he's heading towards it. It's the cliffhanger and I'm watching it on VHS. So I'm, I'm going to be able to watch it. I'm going to have to wait for a week, but I'm like, Oh my God, how's he going to get out of this? He's going right to the saw blade. And the next episode, it, the saw blade hits him and it breaks open. Like it's a cardboard prop or something. And I'm like, Oh, that's right. He's invulnerable to everything. How did I get knocked except out? Pistols. Anyway? <laughs> yeah. Except pistols to the back of the head. So it's it's one of those things that, that that does fit the genre, and I love it, even though it is not very rules right. There is, as Liz already pointed out, and probably Jim will be glad to back up, there's no death. There's no way you're going to die in this game. It's very hard. It's and very hard. And in that hard. sense, it would fit those serials. So yeah. I guess my number four is that you cannot die. 
<laughs> I, I only recall reading one instance throughout the entire book where they even say there's a chance you might die. Uh, Just once. The, there's a chance. And they don't say how. Uh, the, the, <laughs> it'll eat no, you. The, it'll the, eat you. Tropicana, whatever that land was. Frozen orange juice. Yeah, Toucan uh, Sam lives there, I think. It's, yeah, there, uh, there's the dragon, the the dragons there, which have deadly touch or something. Yeah. You can die from. I think that was the one time you could die, but even that takes a while, and you've got some time for your sci-fi, scientific buddy to try to cobble together a anti-venom ray because everything's there's- a ray. There is a ray for everything. In there this. is. <laughs> Everything's a ray. Awesome. Barsoom and your seven rays, you can retire now. We've got all the rays we need. All the rays. <laughs> That's where the cosmic rays came from that, that turned the FF and Fantastic Four. See, they came from Mongo. But, ooh, makes sense. Probably very true. So, yeah, no die. Jim? I'm still stuck back on cosmic rays. Hang on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's just my brain went immediately to Comic-Con where they announced a Fantastic Four Marvel movie. Sorry. Oh, they did? Finally, oh. yes. Yay! Uh, they just don't screw it up. Well, you know what they say, the fifth one's a charm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see, but back to Flash Gordon. Yeah, yeah, what, what's interesting, Corbett, is the comic strip, that the serials and it all is based on. I mean, I'm trying to think. I'm a fan of those 30s comics, and outside of dick tracy where people got shot dead constantly yeah. only in the 30s and 40s i can't think of any comic strips where people just got murdered all the time so yeah serials just keyed off that you know you don't want blood shed in your sunday funnies yeah that was for the ec comics in the 50s so I, I'm, I'm just going to try rocking back and forth between positives and negatives what's positive about this besides just from a historical John Peterson viewpoint, this is wonderful to read just to get a sample of the time in the mid 70s when everybody's trying to figure this stuff out and their typesetting with their typewriters. But in amongst that and a complete absence of tables and rules is cover art by Gary Morrow, who I remember fondly for illustrating black and white Space 1989 comics. So you got him on the cover and uh, Alex Raymond art throughout. They just oh, yeah. lifted uh, great art. And uh, even though I looked and studied that stuff eons ago, it was nice as a refresher. You know, everybody points to who they were influenced, and it's invariably Hal Foster or Alex Raymond. Even Jack Kirby would go around saying Alex Raymond was was his hero when he was a kid, and he's influenced by him. And it's hard to connect Alex Raymond with Jack Kirby unless you've got these rules in front of you and start looking at some of the ink renderings on the cave people and thinking of early Kirby in the 40s when he was he and Joe Simon are doing the same thing. So lots of, of gorgeous art that illustrates exactly the sort of gazetteer-like things they're talking about as you work your way around the planet. I mean, back in the day, whatever this cost, 10 bucks or whatever, it would have been worth it just for the art. Very true. Okay. Liz? Okay. They really like using the word schematic. <laughs> A lot. <laughs> A lot of the text suffers from overspeak. I'm really not sure how I should describe it, but they, they get overly technical or just trying to sound impressive and wind up just kind of sounding a bit dumb. I would read phrases like, players should evaluate the numerative values they rolled for each of the basic characteristics. 
Later, areas of strength should be exploited by the player's choice of role, so that in situations where a solution is called for, the player can choose to exploit an area of strength. It's like, okay, this was brought to you by the Department of Redundancy Department. <laughs> Maybe they were working on a word count. I feel like they were trying a little too hard with the text. He's like, you know, this is very important, and you should take this very, very seriously. All due respect to Lynn Carter, but he wasn't exactly known for having a smaller, fragile ego as a writer. <laughs> I can write Lovecraft just as good as Lovecraft. I can write Howard just as good as Howard. I can go play around in Clark Ashton Smith's world. But yeah, like schematic, it's not just a map, it's a schematic map. And we're going to talk about the schematic map over and over again throughout the entire rulebook. It's like, Go to the schematic map, or you could just go to the map. <laughs> yeah, Lynn Carter drew the map. Oh, you probably really like the Or map. the schematic, sorry. The, the schematic map. <laughs> it's course. a schematic and a map. A schemap. It's a schematic. <laughs> okay, well, my number four is a, a little quirk of the rules that I honestly can't decide is a good or bad thing. Positive or negative, I guess I should say. When you're rolling your attributes, if you roll 12 or higher on your strength, you get a plus one to your combat skill. If you have a nine or lower strength, you get a plus one on your scientific aptitude. So part of me is going, well, if you've got a really low strength, they're giving you a bonus to science. So, you know, it's kind of an advantage. I, I try and a kind of a compensation that you could still be an adventurer type, just a scientist. Another part of me is, so if you roll low strength, by definition, you're a smart nerd. Couldn't be a charismatic person. No, 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 no. You're a weak nerd. So that was weird. I, I still have yet to decide. Is that a good or bad thing? But there it is. So. Oh, is your strength a nine or less? No swashbuckling for you. Nope. But hey, that's okay. You know science. You can invent a mm -hmm. ray with science. You can try science at it. Oh, good point. Because... It's always good to try science in your science-ness. I'm on number three, right? Or am I number two? We're, yeah, you're about to start number three. Okay. We've just done number four. You are to start number three. No, that was one of my one of my ones I thought was fun and terrible. Well. <laughs> it seems to be like the whole game is like that, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like, that's a neat idea. I would never use that in a million years. <laughs> but the um, science, scientific aptitude... Uh -huh. They specifically even write it out in the description that it's it's usable to to defeat Ming and his Ming the Merciless and his arm. You need to, you need to have all these tools. Scientific aptitude is what you've got to have in order to beat him. And uh, it's neat that they emphasize that. But I never I, I don't remember hardly anything in there where a scientific aptitude really popped up in any of the adventure settings. Zarkov. Trying to remember it. I was going to say, I think th really the only use for scientific aptitude is to shave off the amount of time it would take to do something. It's like, well, you can either steal the ray or you can have your science build his own ray. Yeah. Or you can convince what's his head to show you how to work the ray. You know? <laughs> I thought it was a combat alternative, too, when you're trying to persuade one of the kings or chieftains to uh, ally with you, you could just invent something for him instead of fighting yeah. or persuade him. 
there's the thing it pops up occasionally but it's not it's not like as important as they make it sound like here's a bird ray i've invented just for the hawkman in in uh gerp's atomic horror or atomic age or i forget what it was it's the, it's the giant ants they in in the the gerp's atomic horror when it's uh they have science as a skill and science with an exclamation point will, will do whatever it is you need to do you just you do science and you complete it and scientific aptitude intends it kind of is that first step toward that direction of science will do something and then they never backed it up so it's kind of a neat idea that never followed through <laughs> like a lot of it okay well jim i was familiar with scott bizarre before this uh not just from him founding and running uh fantasy games unlimited but by coincidence although i do not have a copy of this game but thanks corbett for triggering my collector's thing i'll be haunting ebay till one pops up i do have a uh, heritage's barsimian battle Manual battle manual which was uh, a book of rules that heritage released to go with the john carter mars licensed minis and that's all scott bizarre not any lynn carter i've got a feeling revisiting that that this is a game that scott wanted to write for flash gordon because it has no role-playing components lots of tables lots of maps lots of charts lots of minis formation things and a much better map than the one lynn carter drew for this game so i've got a feeling left his own devices and that's i think scott bizarre is interesting because he's better known for uh running fantasy games uh unlimited than he is for as a game author and that's because he doesn't have that many credits i i looked his credits up and uh, the Sparsimian Battle Manual, a handful of other games, and the Flash Gordon game are about it. Although he and Lynn Carter did collaborate uh, together just like this on a set of rules called the Royal Armies of the Hyborian Age, which was a broadsword variant that would let you run Conan stuff in miniatures. And uh, apparently they did these two collaborations because they were roommates at some point. Yeah. So fact, um... fact drop. Boom! That's how they. That's how they came to collaborate. Yeah, I was looking at designers and dragons for Fantasy Games Unlimited, and they pointed out that unusual for the '70s, FGU was more of a clearinghouse for art authors to send in their games and get it published through FGU, rather than keeping a you know a design staff like most other game companies did at the time, which were basically made of people who wanted to write games. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but he mostly just published other people's games, like Villains and Vigilantes. And yeah, which was great for Jeff D. and Herman in the 70s, not so great later when they want their rights back. Yeah, Bunnies and Burrows they did, the first edition, um, as well as some other sure. games that you know we can talk about it some other time. All right, well, is that your three? Yes. Okay, Liz? Well, so that I'm not just spending the whole time just ragging on the game. Uh, my number three, I want to point out, I do like how there are permanent negative effects for deserting an injured party member. Yeah. The text as written kind of implies that a player would normally do so. <laughs> <laughs> With phrases like, naturally, group members have the option. Or, as always, members can decide. <laughs> so I guess if one is making the assumption that this sort of behavior would be the norm for someone coming from a wargamer mindset, which I was never a wargamer, so I don't know if that was a done deal all the time in that kind of play but diplomacy but if that was something that would naturally come to someone's mind oh well i know we'll 
just get rid of the injured companion and that way we can move faster. I think it's especially impressive that the game created a mechanic to encourage noble behavior amongst the groups. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> to, to keep a group from uh, killing the character of that one annoying guy that's in every group. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Don't kill and eat your injured party members. Let's not do a Donner party thing here. Well... Unless they're going to die anyway, in which case. Well, then you don't have to kill them because they'll die anyway. Oh, true, you can true. eat them. It's okay then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, I see the two guys sitting around watching their companion. You know. Is he dead yet? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hungry. I've been peckish. <laughs> oh, this chicken is good. Uh, that's not chicken. That's Hawkman. Won't <laughs> <laughs> well, taste like chicken. <laughs> okay, well, my three... For what it's a t- and you know for all our talk at the in the intro, this was put out three years before the Dino De Laurentiis Flash Gordon movie. So this is firmly based in the cartoon serial strips from the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s. I actually ran till the 90s, which I found surprising, but it is very thematic to that, particularly the 30s and 40s. I think. There's lots of talk of basically you can only gain the friendship of about half the the monarchs by the male monarchs by defeating them in single combat. There's lots of enslavement. Everybody loves enslaving around here. And granted, that's more of a way of trying to go, well, you probably should die like in a role playing game. But instead, you're going to be enslaved and you can escape in three turns because they don't really guard their slaves very well. And all the queens can be convinced to join to to aid you, even when you're holding some of them hostage. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's yeah. Okay. But you know, for for what it's attempting to emulate, it's perfectly fine. Well, I won't say it's perfectly fine, but y- you know what I'm saying, here, guys. <laughs> I'm not no, sure what, you're done digging yet. You, what are you saying? It, what are you saying? It is very. It, it emulates the, the, the genre of the time, which is 30s and 40s soap opera serial and what you would see on those serials that Corbett was talking about, even if well, it isn't I, very gender equivalent. I, I will point out, though, this was kind of interesting when they're talking about the, the land of blue magic. And Azura you know, is one of those queens who, you know, will fall in love with one of the, the captives when you are inevitably taken captive. But it says the player or, you know, the character with the highest charisma attractiveness value will be drugged to lose his or her memory as Azura falls in love with this captive. So I Azura, had missed that. Yes, so Azura could conceivably fall for a female character. That's surprisingly progressive. Isn't it though? Okay. Well that that's a and I wow. Okay. All right then. Well so, there's nothing I love me better than some hidden gay subtext that tells me, <laughs> yep, it was back then too. Yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. Well uh, Azura is pretty open minded and and Liz just totally invalidated my entire number three. So hey, she's the exception that proves the rule. How about that? Yeah, okay, fair enough. Um, Corbett, two. Wait, wasn't that Liz talking? I thought it, you were the next one. No, I was. I was. Just... I was the one. Remember, I kept yeah. talking, and she's like, "Well, what are you talking?" And then she oh, trust out. the mic. He always knows what number we're on. We're on two. <laughs> <laughs> 
Number two, Corbett. This is a module. <laughs> <laughs> for just for anybody who's ever thinking about buying it, including Jim, who has a copy now, so <laughs> but this is not a game. I mean it is a game, but it's for anybody who's like thinking, oh, it's it's a game with a little bit of a tweak to No, it's a module. It's it's basically the Flash Gordon cartoon strip laid out as a play-your-own-adventure story with sort of a board game feel. And I think this is one of the failings slash maybe the reason why it's kind of a game is it is that story. It, this is basically your your version of Flash Gordon or Dash Gordon <laughs> or whoever you want to be. Dash Borden. <laughs> Dash Borden. Smash Gordon. <laughs> Smash Horton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Chunk Beef Slab, and I won. Chunk Beef Slab. <laughs> but, but basically, you're, you're going to be playing that story almost to a T. I mean, they they really didn't miss a beat. It is a great supplement in that sense that if you want to know all the stuff about the, the, the world of Mongo. And the, it's a the, tour guide of Mongo. It really is. How to do it in less than eight turns. <laughs> however many that is <laughs> less than eight turns unless you are taken captive by someone in which case you're gonna but but i just wanted to make sure to point that out it is if you'll look out the left side of the bus <laughs> you will see the squagraloids and the hawkmen flying after them <laughs> yeah I, I i see what you mean yeah i think this you could probably make a very good argument that this was the first adventure path. <laughs> yeah. You've got yeah. a campaign here. You could solo. You could roll three characters up and solo your way through this all by yourself yes. in a book. You wouldn't need a average dice. Yes. <laughs> gotta have the average dice. Gotta have average dice. So, yeah. But, but you're yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, this could be totally a solo game. I mean, this is more of an obvious statement. I think a lot of this is obvious statements. <laughs> you know, there are no rules. It is just a story. There's just kind of the thing going. Well, considering how hard this is to find, I think it's okay for us to make obvious statements. Just to, yeah. Just to point that out, how hard it is to find. Someone had to die for me to get this copy. <laughs> wow. That's harsh. <laughs> think about and that. Yes. <laughs> And yet, technically true. I'm not <laughs> denying it. I'm just saying it's hard. I'm just saying I wanted a copy. Then somebody died, and Mike got it. No question that. <laughs> this came out of your dead friend's stash. Well, he wasn't a friend. <laughs> oh, that yeah, apparently he was really too bad. Um, <laughs> after losing his possessions, after he died, so I guess oh my no, no, no. My friend just sold all the dead guy's stuff out of the back of his car at North Texas. <laughs> Wait, that sounds worse. <sighs> Every everyone just needs to stop. Jim, number two. <laughs> Save us, Jim. You're our only. Well, uh, let's 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 flip this around because uh, this is. I, I'm, I was super interested in reading this, so thank you, Corbett, because I enjoyed reading it from a historical viewpoint, reading how they did it and how they were figuring it out. But it's unrunnable. This is not if it, if anybody stumbles across a copy of this who's listening to the podcast or going to make it their life mission to troll eBay like I'm about to to get a copy, you know, for m however many months that takes. Don't do that expecting you're going to sit down with your group and figure out the rules and play it. This is not like original D&D &D Little Brown Books or AD&D or even Metamorphosis Alpha First Edition. Now, I'm a salty dog and 
Uh, I wrote, uh, I got, I took a gig to write an adventure for first edition Metamorphosis Alpha, sat down at the table with my players and started trying to use the rules and realized how far over my head I was, but we've sat down and figured it out. This is not like that. So to flip around to the positive, we're Flash Gordon, this Flash Gordon, that. If you're interested in Flash Gordon as a, a running a, a space opera campaign for your players, you would be much better served to go get the current Savage Worlds Flash Gordon game by Shane Hensley that's uh, out now. You can go get a piece PDF or go buy a print copy. I'm fuzzing out on the publisher. Is it Pinnacle Entertainment? I think. We'll we'll put a link yeah. in the show notes. But people, uh, I, I don't play Savage Worlds, but people talk about it endlessly, so it must be a great system. And, and, and it's everything this is not, and everything this is too. You get all the same copious gazetteer-like information on the setting and the planet Mongo and all the kingdoms and stuff, but you get a game you can actually play too. Yeah, I mean, they themselves come right out and say... That if you want an RPG style game, you should add modifications from existing role playing rule systems. <laughs> I mean, they themselves go, if you want to be an RPG, don't use these rules. Go use some other game's rules. Has anybody here ever seen the Lankmar board game TSR put out, written by Fritz Lieber? It's on my list to acquire, but no. I've never not, had my hands on one. I've never actually read it myself, but I've read some reviews of it and some discussions. And this strikes me a lot like that, because one of the grouses about that board game was each of you are playing a token that is Fofford, Grey Mauser, or some of the associates. But what you're doing is you're going to various lands, raising troops, trying to conquer areas and such. And the obvious point somebody brought out is... That's not Fofford and the Grey Mauser. They don't raise armies and conquer places. They break into places and steal crap. That's what they do. But it And you could literally put any other name on it, on those characters, and it would work exactly the same. And that's kind of how it is here. I mean, yeah, you roll attributes, but really, you're encouraged to play Flash, Dale, and Zarkov, essentially. Sort of like Corbett was saying. I just wanted to direct people to the Savage Worlds thing, because that's current and that's out now. And I don't want anybody to hear us talking about this. Like, uh, Here's a good comparison and contrast, the SPI John Carter game. Uh, to my personal wargaming taste, I'm not much of a wargamer. It's not a great war game, but it's got everything this doesn't. I mean, tables, counters, some role-playing rules, maps. It's a whole box full of stuff. So if you were obsessed with John Carter, Mars, and Barsoom, and you go collect that old SPI game from the 70s, you will not be disappointed. Yeah, it costs you might, freaking much, though. You, you pay 50 bucks or 100 bucks for this on eBay and decide you're going to use it to run a Flash Gordon game, you might be disappointed. Unless you're just really wanting to see how games are written in 77, then yeah. Right. Okay, well... Or a collector. Or a collector, yeah. Liz, number two? From an art and layout standpoint, the <laughs> book gives off a very heavy fanzine vibe to me. And Jim mentioned a little of this earlier. You know, the text is all straight from a typewriter. There are quite a few grammatical and spelling areas. Um, at one point, you read about the planet Mango... Instead I of thought Mongo. that was a scan error. No, my scan. no. It, that, that <laughs> is actually the text, the planet Mango. Yeah, there was a couple things, things like that. That's awesome, Mike. Oh, my, my reader app is Bucky. It says Mango. <laughs> nope. Like, no. Oh, Mango. Oh, well, it was a screw that, up. That was actually yeah. in there. And 
The art is awesome, but that's because it was taken directly from the Flash Gordon comic strip panels. Most of it. But yeah, the stuff that doesn't come from the Flash Gordon, it's all very simplistically hand-drawn. And it's very much like what you would find in a lot of the early fan scenes. What was the term you used, Liz? I'm not going to go there, but... (laughs) Oh, come on. I was going to say, it wasn't booger art, was it? Yeah, booger art. Yeah, booger, booger art. art. I called it booger art, you know. But that—that's—that's that's what you got in a lot of fanzines, especially in the mid seventies. Yeah. Yeah, you know, because people are doing this as a labor of love, and they're not getting paid for it. And quite frankly, I imagine after paying whatever money they had to to get the rights to do this, there probably wasn't a lot left over to hire a for real artist apart from getting the super cool cover so yeah you wind up getting lynn carter or and i think he also did all of the other drawings apart from the map there's drawings symbols on the back yeah you know the heraldry and stuff like that i'm pretty sure he did all of that no skin off lynn carter's nose but an artist he's not looking at it from 42 years later it hits the nostalgia feels really hard I collected a lot of fanzines, not in the 70s, but in the early through mid to late 80s. Looking at this made me think of the fanzines that I contributed to, the ones that I read. On that level, it was cool. But apart from that, it's really not that great to look at, you know, looking at it from someone who is used to the slick production values of today. I'd like to make a point of podcast parliamentary procedure. It's just like ethnic humor. It's fine to joke about your own ethnicity. So if you've ever done booger art, then you can call out booger art. And that's how I feel about it. I mean, I've got I've got booger art and some old Judges Guild stuff from the early 80s. If I showed it to you, you called it booger art. Yeah, I do owe, is it Greg Bell or George Bell? Greg Bell. Greg Bell. I owe Greg Bell an apology after I found out that he was 16 when he drew that for D&D. So it's like, crap, I couldn't have drawn that well. Even when I could mm-hmm. see. <laughs> Certainly not at 16. So For know. like a buck or two a pop, too. Yeah, yeah. But there is a type of rough art that was common to fanzines. We can't deny that. Let he who has not swiped from Kirby cast the first stone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, my number two. Flying Squirrelons. Woo! They are awesome. You get attacked <laughs> by rabid flying squirrelons in the jungle lands. Arboreal, at- right? Or is, yeah, the yeah. forest lands of Arborea. Yeah. And now here's something we hope you'll realize. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. And and I read that and they said, you know, that if you were bitten, you you started having these delusions and everything. And I'm like, and the first thing you think of is that w- these flying squirrelons can talk and that you see a giant talking <laughs> moose over there. And Ger- General Kala is trying to kill moose. Kill moose. <laughs> and bring back his body. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. This Uncle Rocky alive. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yes. You thought and you just got away. Merge. <laughs> you listeners still only thought you got away from the Bullwinkle and Rocky RPG. No, no. It will live on. <laughs> Never. All right, Corbett, bring us home. Number one. I want to give a nice pat on the back to Lynn Carter because it is a, a love letter to Flash Gordon. I mean, basically, his, his forward is more or less like, I love Flash Gordon and screw those guys. I'm doing Flash Gordon. I, I looked up his credits and yeah, Jim's right. He pretty much 
copped a lot of stuff from a lot of people. Uh, he did work on, um, as far as the fandom, modern fandom, he did work on the original Spider-Man cartoon in the 60s. You know, he's got that credit to him. Well, it wasn't like he was swiping, though. They were uh, they were up and up public homages to yeah, various was, authors. More, well, it's just that he never had anything quite all his own. He did he did his own stuff in the 50s, right after he was in the, he was actually in the Korean War. So the real all-American hero there. He came back and did a bunch of fan uh, short stories and stuff that got him going. But then he started doing a lot of Call of Cthulhu and, um, oh, Robert E. Howard type stories. And that's really what got him into that field. So he's like half of Appendix N, isn't it? Yeah. So he's, yeah, pretty solid, pretty solid writer. And he definitely put a lot of care into the world of Flash Gordon. So in that sense, this is a great reference to Flash Gordon. Everything else is pretty true, though. So okay. <laughs> Mike, Liz, and Jim can just put this in a punching bag and go to town on it now. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I like who who does the modern Doctor Who game? Cubicle Seven. Okay, I, I have all those books, and it's a storytelling RPG mechanic. I'll never run it. I'll never play it. I buy the books for the information and the art that's in there because it's all very well annotated and it's information rich. And that's what you're saying. Lynn Carter did with Flash Gordon. Lynn Carter knew his Flash Gordon. So you're saying you buy Doctor Who for the articles? <laughs> yes. <laughs> And the Davros centerfold. <laughs> the Dalek calendar. Paint <laughs> oh, me like one of your French girls. <laughs> do, do you guys know Mikey Mason? Yes. <laughs> okay, like the, the gamer songwriting guy. Yeah, you had um, him on. Well, he does much more than that. Stand-up comedian. He, he gets anywhere to convention near a Dalek, and he has to do something very obscene with the little rand, roundels, right? <laughs> and he's been doing that for years, and it always creeped me out a little. And then I'm watching Doctor Who one day, and Missy does it in the middle of a scene, and I'm like, oh, okay, now it's cool. Now it's cool. <laughs> Missy did it. Turn-ons. Thals, the Doctor! <laughs> <laughs> this Flash Gordon episode brought to you by Davros. <laughs> And the Bullwinkle and Rocky Roll thing. Oh, boy. Okay. Oh, Jim? Oh, are we to number one? Yeah, Yeah, we're still doing this. Okay, yeah. (laughs) I'm running out of ways to parse out and slice and dice this game. So uh, (laughs) I'm I'm just going to go on a Jim rant. How are we doing on emails? Are we getting any emails lately? Uh, Um, I have not checked. We've gotten some, but... There's, there's so much about castles and crusades. We're thinking about just shunting them over to the Crusader podcast. But Okay. Well, I'm going to fix that. Here come the emails. The guy that co-wrote this and also published it under Fantasy Games Unlimited, Scott Bazaar, that we've been talking about, is infamous in gaming for lots of things. But he's most infamous for signing contracts in the 70s with these game creators that, in a sense... Tell them they get their rights back as soon as it's out of publication and then keeps on publishing them. Exactly the same reason DC Comics still owns The Watchmen. They signed that deal with Alan Moore and uh, Dave Gibbons that they got the rights to Watchmen back as soon as it went out of print. Then they never let it go out of print. This has been Scott's business strategy with Fantasy Games Unlimited. So Bushido, he still has the rights to publish it. Villains and Vigilantes, he still has the rights or thinks he does to publish them. Um, Aftermath, the same thing. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I noticed a few new Aftermath things came out. I wonder. You can go to the Fantasy Games Unlimited website today and buy all that stuff in PDF, if not in reprint or backstock. But you notice, not this game, because <laughs> he's litigious, but he's not going after King Feature Syndicate. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, you never sue a big company. Though, granted, who knows? I'm sure King Features is probably like owned by Disney or something, which would make it instead of stupid. Well, but suicidal. he did base it off of the original cart or comic strip. She should be in public domain by now, shouldn't it? Uh, 930s, not yet. Maybe in the 2030s it will be, but right now we still got probably another 10, 15 years. Although, let's not forget, Flash Gordon was a ripoff of Buck Rogers to begin with, so, you know. Well, I mean, things like that are, are there's a gray area. Like, you know, half of John Carter Mars is in the public domain in the U.S., all of it in Europe, some of it in Australia. And now I'm going to write a John Carter game. What can I use and what can I use that'll get, you know, and it, all you have to do is threaten to sue me and I fold like cardboard because I got no money. Yeah. Tell me about it. I, I wanted to do a Carter, John Carter supplement for Victorious, but yeah, that's a question. But you know, as a writer and an artist and a game designer, I take like the Jeff D side on this on, on these kind of things. The right should revert. Yeah, especially after thirty freaking years. It's like, dude, you got your money. Give it back to the guy. Granted, I think Villains of Vigilantes was arguably FGU's most popular game. I think we're all all pretty much on the side of the creators on this one. Sorry, business types, but there it is. So, little G- Scott Bizarre rant over. Okay, Liz? Okay, number one. Uh, let's see. Well, this is more or less just kind of, again, pointing out some of the inconsistencies. Undersea Kingdom of Coralia. One of the things which I could not figure out, uh, the book is stating that if the queen is restored to power, the players have the option of either leaving the kingdom or staying, you know, and the scientists continuing to work for her and stuff. And it's like, well, since the point of the game is to be the first to overthrow Ming with your allies, I don't understand why a party of players would choose to stay. That seems kind of unlikely. And I could not find a rationale as to why that would happen. And then they give this whole thing of, well, if they choose to stay, then spies of Ming's will eventually find them and then they'll be captured. And it's like, yes, but why would they stay? You know? Yeah. You are never no given rash. a choice for anything up to this point. Why are you suddenly given a choice to hang out in the undersea kingdom forever? There's no particular <laughs> rationale that you would hang out with her any more than you would with Queen Freya of Phrygia or yeah. what's her name of the blue magic. Yeah. So that kind of jumped out at me because as we've pointed out, this is very, you go step to step to step to step. You do this, and then this happens, and then you go here, and then this happens, and on and on and on, and then all of a sudden, you might choose to stay with the with the queen in the undersea kingdom. It's like, what? I've got a choice now. Why? You realize <laughs> that under the sea, life would be better down where it's yeah. wetter. Under the sea, take it from him. <laughs> <laughs> I eat the talking crab. <laughs> I'm leaving crabs or no crab. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My number one, when I first started reading and there were the different animals that you could encounter, most of them, you know, they're very different. They're very unusual, depending on what part of Mongo you're on. And it was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And this is what happens if you fail and you get wounds or you get da da da. And then it's like, oh, and you go to another territory and fight this type of monster, which is very different, but has more or less the same effect. And this one, and this one, and this one. It only really starts getting different as you get closer to Mingo City. I think you kind of touched on a little bit, Liz, earlier, but that really kind of stuck out to me that, you know, it, it's selling short the 
real strength of this book, which is the geography and zoology of Mongo. Here, here. So that that was unfortunate. So anyway, let's uh, talk about what does and doesn't make saves. What makes a save and what is going to take half? All right, we will continue on in the same order. So Corbett. What takes a save and what takes half? A lot of it takes half, but... <laughs> <laughs> half and half and half. It's it's a great reference. That makes the save. It is a fantastic reference if you just... Like, if you don't know anything about Flash Gordon and want to get caught up on it and couldn't get to Wikipedia for some reason and <laughs> could only go to eBay and find a really old copy, more power to you. But it, it, it sums up everything. It walks you through the entire world Literally, it walks you through the entire world, <laughs> but it, it it does cover everything about Mongo and what what's in it. And what doesn't make the save is it does not have a single reference to any one person as a statistical figure in any way whatsoever. That's true. You don't even get stats for Ming. Yeah, you don't get Ming, even though he's like the main focus. Go kill Ming. Yeah. Nah, you don't need Ming. You don't need Prince Baron. You you don't Laura. need you don't need anybody. And so apparently, that is really really weird. Even though the, as a character you will have stats, there's no Flash to reference to know if you're good enough to be in in comparison. Or as an old school gamer, that really bugs me. I know it's a storytelling game, but I can tell you right now, it doesn't make the save. Is is yeah? It's no, there's not a stat in there. So good luck. I don't think you have to be an old school gamer just to want stats for your characters. <laughs> your NPCs. I want to know how many means it takes to take down a battle mech. <laughs> <laughs> All of them. <laughs> ming, 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 ming. I mean, sure, you put them in a cannon, it's going to hit the battle mech, but then what kind of damage will it do? At least one mango's worth. <laughs> <laughs> At least. How many Max von Seedows does it take to get to... Anyway. All right, Jim. What I agree wholeheartedly with Corbett because what makes the save is the fantastic Alan Raymond art and the very well researched, detailed setting information that Lynn Carter and Scott Bazaar put in this book. We're gonna all have the same make the save. <laughs> what really makes it though? You know, the Alex Raymond art took me back to when I was a kid and. The, the the most uh, obscure comic book publisher I used to get was there was like a, a convenience store that only carried off-brand comics. And King Features Syndicate did their own comic imprint, and they did the characters they owned, uh, the Phantom, Flash Gordon, and Popeye comics. And I went through like a whole summer <laughs> buying those comics. So the and, and, and reading through the rules, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember those guys. So that part, moi. Uh, what doesn't make the save is the amount of money you'd have to pay today to get a copy of an old, unplayable game. And anybody who's even thinking about that and sees a copy on eBay should totally not bid on it. So that way Jim can win it? Yeah, yeah, just leave it <laughs> just leave it there. <laughs> For some moron to come along and pick up. Yeah, okay. Like me. Now what, what <laughs> you got your copy. You be quiet. I know. Someone had to die, man. <laughs> Sorry, was that your doesn't make the save too? That was what doesn't make the save is the amount of money you'd amount have of to, money. Go, okay. to go get a collector copy of this. Un unless you have any other friends that are whose graves we can dig up. <laughs> wow. Ah! Ah! Liz? <laughs> yes? What makes the save? Well, 
I'm sure it will surprise everyone <laughs> to hear that the best use of this book would be as a resource <laughs> for the various geographic locations and kingdoms of Mongo. <laughs> I was thinking it was going to be the squirrels. Hmm, who would have Scroll thought? Squirrel-ons. Well, that too. <laughs> yeah, and you know, you have flying squirrel-ons, so yeah. there is Rabid. that. Rabid flying squirrel. Yes, and as we also mentioned, the tech. You know, you've got a ray for everything. You've got the magnetic ray. You've got the disintegrator ray. You've got detecto rays. You've got an anti-venom ray. And my personal favorite, which is not a ray, the space-o-phone. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Phone. And that's like, it's that, a that's phone. In space. space. <laughs> ace, ace, ace. Like everybody else has said, and probably what Mike is going to say too, what makes the save is the resource potential of the book. What does not make the save, uh, it's not really a playable game as it is, unless you either modify the rules extensively or you just throw up your hands and use a completely different game engine to run it. As they you know, recommend. As they recommend themselves. <laughs> so, you know, they would know. I recommend and, Monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> and that's kind of what I thought. You know, it, it all boils down to being a slightly more complex version of Monopoly. It's an ongoing succession of nothing but rolling dice and moving markers on a map board. You know, it's like, well, if you go to X, then Y will happen. Roll two dice to see if you succeed in doing Z. If you fail, you lose six turns. I think they should have probably just actually made this a for real board game and spent their money on making an elaborate full color game board with fancy chits and dice you know and just with you know actual card stock yeah see that's legit because in a way it, it reminded me of I was the dungeon yeah. board game that. yeah you could have done it like the dungeon board game and had a beautiful board showing the schematic map and <laughs> And yeah, you go to each level, which is more dangerous as yeah, you progress. Have some color, have some color insets of the Flash Gordon comic strip art placed at the various corners of the board. It could have been a real thing of beauty. And in the end, it plays more like a board game than like anything else. As as a role-playing game, it does not make the save at all. Wow. Full damage. Kapow. I've got five bucks that says Mike doesn't make this <laughs> Mike, what makes the save? I only had to kill one friend to get a copy of it. <laughs> <laughs> no dogs were killed. <laughs> no friends were killed in the in the honest. Ah, <laughs> uh, bah! I'm gonna have to agree with everyone. Sorry. <laughs> I owe somebody five bucks. <laughs> Despite all my my bah humbug old cooteness, my first experience with Flash Gordon was the cartoon in the early eighties or late seventies. That was a it, good cartoon. I, I love that cartoon, but I knew very little about Mongo. And then, of course, when you see the movie, it's rather different. So I appreciated being able to read this and get a real feel of the original serial. Mongo with its various kingdoms and territories and different beings and everything. I thought that was really, again, as a geography 
lesson and anthropological slash zoological lesson, it was great. In that regard, it was great. If I were going to run it, and you could run a game with this, as long as you just got a whole different set of rules. <laughs> and and when it said, say, they run into rabid squirrelerons, you basically, as the GM, come up with stats and whatever game system you're using for rabid squirrelons, and then run the combat. If they're in the undersea kingdom, you come up with a rationale, a plausible one, why those characters would want to stay or not. Because the, the quote-unquote rules they give you are pitiful. They're, they're just not good. The one redeeming feature I can say about it is if it was playable at all, you could potentially do it solo as a solo game. In which case, the only thing you'd have to do is do kind of a time, you know, give yourself a time limit rather than competing against other groups. I wonder if that's another reason they had it to where you competed against the other groups, because it's so hard to die, to give you an impetus to keep hurrying. That would work. But anyway, that's that's my make the save. Does it make the save? Well, pretty much like everyone else said, more, if it's anything, it's a board game. It's not an RPG. It's got a couple of maybe interesting ideas that, if it had actually been developed, might have been worthwhile. But... Yeah, for the most part, it, it's not fully playable, and I'm so glad I didn't spend 140 bucks on it, which is what it's going. What, which is what the average is on Board Game Geek for for this game. Yikes! Oh, okay, I'm out. Then. Yeah, it was like I mean, holy. You might find a good deal on eBay if you. Just yeah, hang I mean, in there. you hang in. You can find a good deal all over the place, but yeah, that's. That's why when I had the chance to buy that one for Corbett, I jumped on it because it's like, yeah, not going to get it that cheap anywhere else. Just one dead friend. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> that has been Flash Gordon and the Warriors of Mongo by <laughs> Fantasy Games Unlimited, co-written by Lynn Carter and Scott. <laughs> However you pronounce we'll, his last name. We'll say bizarre. We'll say bizarre. How bizarre. Uh Thanks for listening, everybody, and hope you found it entertaining as well as informative. Hey, we learned a new type of dice. <laughs> yes, we yeah. have. We learned about average dice. Average so dice. Nothing else. You, we got that. We got that. Oh, dude. Forget eBay. I'm going to be on the phone with Tim Cask right after this call. Hey, you got an extra set of average <laughs> dice? <laughs> Just be prepared for 45 minutes of explanation of what average dice are. Oh, yeah. We, we do that to <laughs> each other. Fair That's fair. fair. All right. Well. Thanks for listening, everybody. Say goodnight, folks. What do you mean, Flash Gordon approaching? <laughs> Gordon, goodbye. <laughs> oh, man, now I gotta, I'm under pressure to think it's something. <laughs> That's not fair. It's a fair. No. Oh, I'm just out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Briark, pathetic earthlings. Oh, even he's got one. <laughs> even he. Yeah. That we're out. <laughs> but just for that. Who can save you now? Flash. Mississippi Bones. You can find them at mississippibones.bandcamp.com. All 
player characters mentioned in this podcast are fictional, and any resemblance to PCs living or dead is purely coincidental. No NPCs were armed in the making of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save for Hath.